Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, June the 14th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It's in the nature of this podcast that we very often discuss crises of one sort or another and the responses to those crises and sometimes their aftermaths as well. Now, the historian, geographer, sociologist and biologist Jared Diamond has just published a major book called Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crises, which is about how different nations have weathered crises in recent centuries. He joined me in the Irish Times for a discussion about that book and his broader views on how societies develop, survive or fail to sustain themselves. I hope you enjoy it. Jared Diamond, you're very welcome to the podcast. Um, I've been an admirer of yours for years, read several of your books and also watched with fascination uh, as somebody who refuses categorization. You have travelled across so many professions and specialties over the course of your life, from medicine to science uh, to you're officially a geographer these days, but you're also a, a writer of with a huge sweep. You write about history, I suppose, as well, and social science, all these things. That's true. I've been interested in different things and I've had career shifts from a gallbladder physiologist to an expert on New Guinea birds, which I still am, and now a historian and geographer and a professor of geography at the University of California. And we hear these days a lot about academia, that academics are very, are forced to stay within their lanes, you know, that in the world of academia, it's disapproved of if you, if you move from one field into another, it's supposed to be token a, a lack of seriousness. It, it is a problem. It's a, it's a significant career problem um, to be interested in multiple things. It arouses jealousy. Anthropologists and historians who see a gallbladder physiologist writing about anthropology and history. Uh, individual anthropologists and historians have been wonderful to me in explaining and in, in reading drafts of my chapters, but some of the organizations get upset. So when you bring your scientific background, because you were a scientist for, for many years, was your, was your primary occupation, and you bring it to areas that are traditionally not regarded as scientific. They are the social sciences or the humanities or, or history. What, what do you think you bring to the table that, that other people don't? Then? What I bring to the table for history is the comparative approach. I don't do single case studies. I don't write books about 18th century Germany. Most books by historians are single case studies and they have their advantages because you can devote all 400 pages of the book to one country. My current book, Upheaval, looks at seven countries and that means that I get 40 pages per country. But the great advantage of comparisons is that they show different outcomes, they force you to ask questions that you would never ask if you looked at one country at a time and they constantly force you to ask why is it that this happened in this country and not in another? Why at the end of the American Civil War did the winners not kill the losers while at the end of the Spanish and Civil War and Finnish Civil Wars, the victors did kill the losers? So what I bring to bear from a background as a physiologist and as a bird ecologist is the comparative approach to history. 
And why these seven countries? These seven countries, because they are the countries that I know best and where I've lived and where, with one exception, I speak the language. They're not a random ex- selection of the world's countries. Someone could rightfully point out, Jared, you've not given us a random selection. You haven't discussed any African country. You've discussed only one developing country, and that's true. Um, that's a drawback. But the gain is that they're the countries that I know the best. I can write about them from personal experience, and others can then test a more unbiased sample of the world's countries. So you've spent time or lived in all these countries, and they're, I mean, they're quite a span of countries, as you say. They don't cover all bases, but Japan, Indonesia, Australia, Finland, Germany, the United Kingdom, the United States, and Chile. That, that's true. I, I've lived in in all of those countries except Japan. But for Japan, I have Japanese relatives and I have a lot of Japanese students in compensation. And I speak or spoke the languages of all of those countries. I even learned Finnish. I still speak Indonesian. And so I, um, I have a feeling and a long history with these countries. I go back in the UK. I go back to 1950. I go back 70 years. Finland, I go back 60 years. And that's a great advantage. I think before we look at a couple of those those examples, it's important to state that you're bringing a certain framework to this, which is, uh, I suppose, another science, which we haven't mentioned, which is psychology. My framework, yes. I look at national crises from the perspective of personal crises. By personal crises, I mean what you and I and everybody listening to us has gone through, breakdowns of marriages, deaths of loved ones, setback to your finances or health or career. All of us go through these things. Most of us get out of them by adopting selective changes. We learn not how to mess up our second marriage or or how to rescue our first marriage. And as Marie, my wife is a clinical psychologist who did a specialty in crisis therapy, as she talked to me about the outcome predictors, which of her clients are succeeding in making change and which are at risk of suicide. Um, Marie talked to me about the dozen outcome predictors, and I realized that in some cases, similar ones apply to national crises. Countries do or do not get help from allies. We People do or do not get help from friends. Countries do or do not accept responsibility for the trouble that they're in. People do or do not accept responsibility. Countries do or do not acknowledge that they're in a crisis. Think of my own country today. Countries are or are not honest about appraising their problems. Think of my own country plus your neighbor, Britain, um, today. So there are parallels, which I found instructive, parallels, but also big differences between personal crises and national crises. And so would it be right then to think of you taking this psychological structure and these ideas of of a very particular form of psychology? It's sort of triage psychology, isn't it? It's not like the kind of the the years-long investment in finding out about your childhood in order to, you know, discover some long-lost truths about yourself. It's dealing with an emergency situation. And that you're using that as, I think of it more as a metaphor, than, than anything else for, for countries? Would that be fair? That's a good way to put it. Um, in some cases, it's more than a metaphor. In some cases, the parallels are close. Um, example, countries getting help from allies, people getting help from friends, countries accepting responsibility or denying it, people accepting or denying it. In other cases, it's a metaphor. People have what psychologists call ego strength, self-confidence. Countries don't have ego strength, but they have national identities for which you can consider ego strength as a metaphor. And then there are the big differences. Countries have leaders. 
we individuals do not have leaders. Countries have groups competing with each other with different interests. I, as an individual, do not have different groups within me competing for different interests. Um, people sometimes suggest, I think you mentioned it in the book, in relation to in your, your first piece about Finland and the story of Finland and how it, you know, it, how it made its way through the Second World War and negotiated its way through both by military success and, and tough political compromises too. But you mentioned in that, this, that the, the, the Chinese word, I think it's YG, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, it contains within it the words for both danger and opportunity. And that's become a sort of a, almost a cliche, I think, in the world of business, for example, you, you hear that. But it is true, isn't it, that it's these moments of where one is tempered in the fire that define who one is, perhaps as a country as well as a person. Yes, Winston Churchill had the expression, never let a good crisis go to waste, mm. meaning you can learn things from them. In the case of Finland, Finland with a population then of less than 4 million, attacked by the Soviet Union in 1939 with a population of 170 million. Finns, 100,000 Finns got killed and lots of Finns orphaned and widowed, but Finland preserved its independence and it learned a lesson, namely that nobody was going to help Finland if it got into trouble again. The Finns had to keep the Russians happy and so Finland has been this paradox of a liberal democracy, one of the world's richest countries, on excellent terms with the Soviet Union and restraining its democracy. The Finns don't shoot off their mouths denouncing Russia or the Soviet Union when the Finns cannot influence Russia or the Soviet Union and will just poison relationships. To me, being in Ireland now is an interesting parallel because Ireland, like Finland, is not a big, powerful country. It is a small country with fixed geography. Ireland will always be on the west side of the United Kingdom, separated from Europe by the United Kingdom. Ireland's geography will never change. Ireland does not have great freedom of action. But Ireland has to wait for the opportunities, just as Finland did, and figure out how you're going to react when the opportunity – for example, if Brexit should come through, that will present opportunities and dangers for Ireland. I hope that your government is now thinking about what you will do if there is Brexit. And the decisions, if I understand your book correctly, the decisions our government will make or the, or the directions in which Irish society will move will be profoundly uh, not just affected but driven really by our own national experience over the last couple of hundred years, I suppose. That, that's true. That's an advantage and it's a danger. The danger in particularly in the case of Ireland. This is my second visit to Ireland and my first visit to Ireland 28 years ago. I went to your museum with an, ex with an exhibit on the Easter Rebellion. God, that is gripping. And one, one can understand from that. But if, if, if Ireland gets swept up in self-pity for its, its brutal history, hmm. just as if Finland got swept up by self-pity, you're not going to think clearly and you have to be able to put the emotion behind you and figure out what is good for you and how to deal with other countries that have been very nasty to you in the past. There's another island nation, a very different one. Um, you, you write about Japan, which is, you know, which is a country you know. And it's always struck me that in history, one of the most remarkable transformations from inside of a society was what happened in Japan in the second half of the 19th century, that Japan, which had been essentially a closed society, came into contact with the West and with the technological power of the West and that the, I think it's the Meiji dynasty there, decided 
that they needed to transform Japanese society in order for it to survive. Uh, the, the classic phrase, isn't it, from Lampedusa's The, the Leopard, that uh, in order for things to stay the same, everything must change. When you say Japan came into contact, that's putting it politely. It's like saying that that in August and September of 1940, Britain came into contact <laughs> with Goering's Luftwaffe. Uh, yeah, Japan. Yeah, they showed up. Okay. <laughs> Japan received an uninvited visit by a U.S. fleet that demanded a treaty and protection for shipwrecked U.S. sailors. The Japanese realized that they had to get strong fast or Japan would face the fate of China of being attacked by the West and losing a lot of its independence. And the result was that Japan is the outstanding example in the modern world of a crash course in selective change where the Japanese borrowed selectively from the West. They borrowed some things from Britain and other things from Germany and France and the United States to the point where Japan is the most powerful non-European or non-European derived country. Japan within 50 or 60 years became a first world country. So this is the outstanding success story of selective change. It was going to be the first chapter of my book until I realized that Finland is emotionally a more gripping first chapter and Japan's the second And also chapter. people are less familiar with Finland, I suppose. So there's an element of surprise to the Finnish story, perhaps, perhaps more so. Um, how, how did they do that? What was it about Japan that allowed it to do that, and even in terms of your psychological framework? In terms of my psychological framework, Japan was characterized, unlike your neighbor, the United Kingdom now, was characterized by outstanding, honest self-appraisal. The Japanese looked in the face the threats that they were facing. Um, they looked to what they needed to change. They were not wrapped up in self-pity, oh, poor us being being threatened by the West, or poor us and the UK being threatened by that bad European Union. They were cold-blooded about it. They sent embassies to Europe to learn from other countries. They figured out what we, we want to retain of ourselves. We want to retain the emperor. We want to retain kanji. We want to retain much about traditional Japanese culture. But we'll wear Western clothes and ties. We'll adopt a parliament. We'll adopt a cabinet. So it's an outstanding example of honesty, deficient in both the U.S. and the U.K. today, and selective change. Um, And... Then is there, as successful though that process was, isn't it kind of be argued that it then led to a further generation in the 20th century on the, on the back of that success, perhaps making some terrible mistakes and building on, on, on top of what you've just described, a highly militarized and militaristic and aggressive society, which ultimately led Japan into a disastrous direction in the Second World War. Absolutely, you're, you're right. The fact that the person or country succeeds in in resolving one problem doesn't mean that you have a happy life forever after. Um, A person whose first marriage fails may or may not make a happy second marriage. And if the person does make a happy second marriage, the person may have career difficulties. You're absolutely right that Japan dealt amazingly with the crisis of being forcibly opened by the West in the 1800s, but that then Japan turned into a path of disaster in the 1930s, made bad choices that led to World War II under hopeless conditions and led to the, the atomic bomb. So, so yes, Japan illustrates that countries like people, if you solve one problem, that doesn't mean that you are safe for the rest of your future. 
I mean, you've mentioned the UK there, and and I should say that in the book you mention the words Brexit and Trump once in the preface, and don't return to them afterwards, which I think is a very very pointed way of handling it. But but the UK does figure. The UK is one of the countries which you describe faced with a crisis, which is the crisis of uh, loss of empire. I suppose it was embodied most significantly in the Suez Crisis in 1956, when Britain realised it didn't, it wasn't a world power anymore. But how to cope with that loss of empire in the late 50s and early 1960s? I, I was born in 1937, and so I went to graduate school in the UK, 58 to 62, long before you and most of our listeners were born. The United States, the, Britain, the UK was going through multiple crises then, the loss of empire, the independence of the colonies, the fact that Britain was no longer the most powerful country in the world. Britain, when I was living there, was scrapping its last battleships. It had just gone through the Suez Crisis. So, so many things were happening that were plunging Britain into a crisis then. Britain emerged from that crisis in the 60s and 70s with reasonable success. Britain is once again, I think, the sixth richest country in the world. It found a new identity in the world, um, no longer the the pursuing an independent policy, but a new identity. But again, Britain, just like Japan, as we were just discussing, the fact that Britain solved a problem once doesn't mean a happy future forever. Britain decided to join the European Union, and now Britain is having a new crisis. We shall see what happens. And you're in a unique position maybe to comment then on, because of your own personal experience of being there in the, you know, in the late 1950s um, and 60s and now writing about it now. I, I never thought of that period of, of, in British history as being a moment of crisis. I suppose definitely one of decline and perhaps one of confusion and then various other things happened, as you say, in the, in the 1960s and 1970s. But now that we look at it through the prism of Brexit, which is not mentioned in your book, we now see sort of lines that, you know, there, 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 are, there are elements of British history, which are sort of have had a resurgence, you know, that sense that Britain should be a, you know, a, a kind of a trading master of the universe when it comes to, to, to global trade should be should be a lord of its own domain that that it's an it's an island nation and shouldn't be over connected with Europe uh, you hear these rhetorical flourishes about returning you know the relationships with the you know the old lands of empire Australia and Canada it all sounds like terrible bullshit to me but there is a there is a kind of a connection there being drawn no matter how tenuous isn't there um yeah to, to speak of Britain when I was living there 58 as, as mm. being in a crisis, it's not an explosive crisis. This was not Finland, November 30, 1939, sure. attacked one night by the Soviet Union. That's an immediate crisis that gets your attention. Instead, when I was living in Britain, Britain was undergoing a slowly unfolding crisis. At the time, neither my British friends nor I understood it. In retrospect, we can see that the crisis was multiple loss of empire, redefinition of the role, um, role with Europe. Other crises that I discuss in my book include some explosive ones, the arrival of the U.S. fleet in Japan in 1853, the coup d'etat, the military revolt in Chile on September 11th, 1973, the genocide in Indonesia on October 1, 1960. Mm. Those are crises that explode suddenly. But they're also, as we know in our personal lives, slowly unfolding 
crises. That's what Britain was having in the late 50s and 60s. It's what Australia um, has undergone in the time that I've been visiting Australia. From 1964, it's not that things blew up in Australia one night. It's that gradually since 1964, when I first visited Australia, it had a white Australia policy. And gradually over the following decades, without an explosion, Australia undid its white Australia policy, recognized that it was involved with Asia more, much more than, than with Britain and with the Commonwealth, and slowly carved out a new identity for itself. When we talk about something like Australia realized something or Australia you know, took account of something, what are we talking about there? Are we talking about governing elites? Are we talking about some sort of mass popular consciousness? Obviously, it's an important factor is whether you know, some of these countries have been democratic some of the time and not all of the time. So what is, when you say Australia did this or Australia thought that or Australia changed, are you, what, what exactly are you talking about? That's a very good question. You, you formulated um, very well. For a person, it's clear, um, an individual, rec- when my first marriage broke up, um, it was clear to me, Jared, your first marriage is broken up and you messed up. Um, in the case of a country, there's not one person. In the case of a country, instead, what's involved is usually the reaching of a national consensus. And that is inevitably slower than it is in the case of an individual. In the case of Britain in the 50s and 60s, there was more or less a national consensus reached that Britain's future was no longer with the Commonwealth, but that Britain's future was going to be with Europe. And with the United States today, we we have not reached a national consensus on what the United States needs to do. Similarly, Britain today is revisiting the decisions of the 60s, 70s. Britain has conspicuously not reached a national consensus. That's a reason why crises for countries usually are much slower unfolding than crises for individuals because you have to reconcile the interests of groups and that's not the case for an individual crisis. And sometimes, I mean, countries, you know, in in one way can can always be viewed as imagined communities of one sort or another. The very concept of the nation state is really only two or three hundred years years old and people had different conceptions of their local or belief identity, you know, expressed in other ways to this day. So you have countries like the former Yugoslavia, which doesn't exist anymore. You look at a country like Iraq, it doesn't really seem very convincing as a coherent country. And then you have other identity groups like the Kurds, who are a people without a country, aren't they? So there's, a, a con- there's always a, an element of artificiality to this national construct around people who may, in your Indonesian example, uh, you know, has only been around as an idea for 100 years and spans a vast uh, part of the Earth's surface with many, many different languages and belief systems. You're right. The, the artificial uh, artificiality is greater or lesser. In the case of Japan, Japan has been an entity since couple of hundred years before Christ. So Japan has a long-standing, stable national identity. As you say, Indonesia, which was a Dutch colony, the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia became independent in 1949. And so in the time that I've been working in Indonesia, I started there in 1979, Indonesia has gradually developed a national identity with a much shallower footprint than in Britain. But it has succeeded, and the Indonesian national identity now depends upon the Indonesian language that unifies this country with 700 independent languages, and also Indonesia's memory of its independent struggle 
against the Dutch, just as for us Americans today, with due respects to your neighbors, part of America's identity is the American Revolution, our independent struggle against the British from nineteen from 1775 to 1783. Yeah, and I'm conscious in, in our own local Irish example and in that American example you give that these, these national narratives are always uh, highly selective and they tend to gloss over some things and emphasize others. They are selective and they, they range all over the map from relatively honest accounts of one's history, albeit somewhat selective, to blatant lies. In the case of Britain, uh, Britain, um, British people until recently talking a lot about the Battle of Britain, Britain's maintaining its independence against the Luftwaffe. It's true, Britain did maintain its independence against the Luftwaffe. There were other things going on in Britain at the time, but it is not dishonest for the British people to be proud in retrospect about the Battle of Britain, although there were other things going on. There are other cases of national pride depending upon lies, um, with due respect to our current administration in the United States. Um, much of the federal the leader of the federal government in the United States, uh, much of what gives him pride, I would say, is based on a lie rather than on the sources of pride that should hold the United States together. Because our relationships with our own history, I mean, they're, they're mutable and they, they can change from generation to generation. I mean, Germany, which is one of your examples in the sort of the, the, the post-war era in the um, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, you write about how, how important, I suppose, the European project was for Germany to find a way out of where it found itself at the end of devastation in the war. I was kind of surprised by, but I respect uh, your account of it because you were there and I wasn't. By a, The sense I get from you in the book is when you went to Germany at that period, you found a country which was very conscious of the sins of the fathers, of what had happened during the Nazi regime. But I, coming at it from a different perspective, my my kind of perspective on German history is that there was a there was a powerful movement in the 1960s and 1970s against that post-war generation for covering up the crimes and ignoring the the Nazi crimes. So, is there what what would your perspective on that be? You are absolutely correct. Your perspective was true when I was living in Germany in the 1960s, and and my pers- I mentioned that um, Germany changed a lot in the 1960s. The Germany that I knew was in denial. One did not talk about the Nazi Nazi legacy, um, particularly with the student revolt of 1968 and developments in Germany since then. Uh, Germans Germans today are the most pitiless country that I know in talking about the bad things that they they did. Every school child in Germany, in German schools. There is much teaching about the Holocaust. German school children are sent to visit concentration camps. They are encouraged to visit Israel. There is no country that today, not in the 1960s, but that today is more honest about their bad deeds of the past. Whereas it's not the case that in Britain today, every British school um, is taught about what the British did to Ireland culminating in the Easter Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the case in the United States. We spend lots of time in schools talking about slavery and what we did to Native Americans. In this respect, Germany is pitiless and honest. That's not to say Germany is perfect, but they got that virtue. But there's, you know, there's an argument for, you know, for forgetting as well as for remembering sometimes. I mean, your, your Chilean example and the kind of the, the 
the violence and brutality of the coup which brought Pinochet to power and Allende taking his own life in the in the presidential palace and a, a very, very authoritarian uh, and oppressive regime, uh, albeit economically successful, that, that uh, succeeded that for 20 years or so. And when Chile returned to democracy... Um, there wasn't um, a, a process of revenge, of trial of people who had abused human rights, uh, really because the country was still divided. There was a sort of pragmatic acceptance that it was time to move on. At least that's the way you describe it. That's right. It's not that Chileans forgot. Um, the, um, um, what's her name? Bachelet, recent president of Chile. Mm. Her father was tortured almost to death under the military government. She herself was tortured. So Chileans have not forgotten the terrible things that happened, but Chileans have a strong enough national identity that the first democratic socialist president of Chile after the end of the military dictatorship in his inaugural speech, when many people were hoping that he would say, we're going to take revenge and punish those bad torturers. In his speech, he said, I want to build a Chile for all Chileans. And what that meant was that he knew that 45% in the last election had voted for the military dictator. Only 55% voted to end the military dictator. Um, Chilean national identity was strong enough that he said, this has to be a country where the, the tortured will live together with their torturers. We won't forget, but there's no alternative for us. May I ask you, because you've hinted at it a couple of times over the course of this conversation, is the United States in the midst of a crisis of this sort right now? Of course. The, you, know, whether, you can debate whether we're in the midst of one or whether we're spiraling into one. Yes. Mm. And in fact, two chapters of my book um, deal with what I see as the crises in the United States today. The ones that I see, the one that I see most serious is the decline of political compromise which threatens us with literally the end of democracy because of manipulation of voter registration in the United States within the next five or ten years. We're not going to have a military coup in the United States as did Chile, but I devote a whole chapter to the infringement on democracy by local and state electoral officials preventing people from voting who are likely to vote for the other party. That ends democracy. The other problems, big problems of the United States um, are... Um, um, so the decline of political compromise, the decline of voter turnout and of voter registration, the decline in equality and in mobility. The United States has this myth of rags to riches that you can arrive poor and you end up rich. In fact, that's more difficult in the U.S. than in any major democracy now because of the decline in socioeconomic mobility. And then finally, the decline of government investment in the United States for public purposes such as infrastructure and education. If the government doesn't invest, um, private individuals are not going to invest, invest in streetlights and in, in highways. Only the government can do that. And unfortunately, the United States, um, the United States federal government has been steadily reducing its expenditures for public good. This may be an impossible question given the, the amount of time that we have, but given that you're famous for going back to root causes in, in, in some of your earlier books, where does, take for example, the decline of of democracy and gerrymandering and yeah, and all those things, where are they coming? What, what is it in American history that has led us to this point with that problem? That's a big question. Of course, the United States has always had political uh, declines of political compromise, notably uh, 
awful civil war which killed more Americans than all other wars put together. So yes, we've had problems with political compromise before, but the, the decline in political compromise in the last 20 years has been a new trend. It's not just a political phenomenon. Um, Compromise and civility in the United States are declining not only in politics, but they're declining in academic life. They're declining in elevators. You call them lifts. It used to be when I was growing up that when the lift stopped, you let the people out before new people. Nowadays, when the lift stops, people crush in. It's just an example of increasing incivility in the United States. Why in the U.S. more than in Western Europe and Australia and Japan? My hypothesis is that it's connected with the decline in face-to-face communication, internet cell phones, radio, television. Of course, you have all of those things in Ireland and the UK, but those technologies proliferated first in the United States. So maybe Western Europe is going to end up like the United States. But on the other hand, the United States has less social glue to hold us together than does Ireland and the UK. Our country is big. When we move we move more often than you do, we move 3,000 miles. Uh, Most Americans are out of touch with the people with whom they grew up as children. Friendships count for less in the United States than they do in in Europe. And so another possible reason for the increase in incivility is that there's less social glue to hold us together. Although it's not peculiar to the United States. I mean, some of those phenomena you'll see, you, you'll see across the world. You do see them across the world, but it's worse in the United States. Well, you're the market leaders. <laughs> we, we're, the, we're the market leaders of... Either we are first and you'll get there too Hmm. or because we have less social glue. So in Italy, I spend lots of time in Italy. My Italian friends spend at least as much time on their cell phones as do Americans. But Italians are not nasty, as as nasty as are Americans because in Italy, the social glue friendships count for much more in Italy than in the United States. In two weeks in Italy, um, I spend more time with friends. I have more lunches and dinners in two weeks in Italy than in a whole year in the United States. Let me ask you, finally, it's something that actually probably relates, it relates to this book, but it also relates to a previous book of yours, Collapse, um, which was published in, I think, 2007. Uh, can these principles be applied outside the, uh, in a larger frame than the nation state? Because the nation state is increasingly constrained. Uh, Finland always was, Ireland and other small countries always are, but all nation states are increasingly constrained by a kind of a globalized um, marketplace and the way in which trade works. And the major challenge we face, if you believe, uh, as I do, the, uh, what the scientists are saying is, uh, is the climate crisis. And that can only really be addressed at a higher level than the nation state. I'm glad you asked that. And and no, it's not the case that I paid you to ask that question. You asked it spontaneously. The next last chapter in my book is on problems not of nation states, but problems of the world, because the world also faces problems. We face the nuclear problem, the climate change problem, the resource problem, the inequality problem. Um, The world also faces problems to which that same framework of acknowledgement, responsibility, honest self-appraisal, interaction between groups plays out. And my chapter on the world ends on a cautiously optimistic note because I realized that in the last 50 years, the world has managed to get together and solve really difficult problems such as delineating overlapping economic zones and getting chlorofluorocarbons out of the atmosphere and the Marpole Agreement on the High Seas and getting rid of smallpox. The world has solved 
thorny problems in recent decades that gives me cautious optimism, at least 51%, that the world will succeed in solving the really difficult problems that are And you don't have a fear that, as some people suggest, that, that, that human crisis nearly always or historically has ended up with physical conflict or, of, of, or, or violence of some sort? No, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't always ended up with physical con, um, conflict or, or, or violence. Um, Iceland has start, done very well for a thousand years. Britain has done remarkably well for a thousand years. Uh, yes, civil war and all that stuff. But, but for the last many centuries, Britain has done remarkably well. So it, Japan has done well for millennia. It is not the case that things always end up badly. Sometimes they turn up happily, and I hope they will end up end up happily for the world of my sons now. On that very optimistic note, we'll leave it there. Jared Diamond, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Thank you. And Upheaval, Turning Points for Nations in Crisis is published by Alan Lane. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and to those of you who've been in touch with me about the podcast in recent weeks. Those messages are always really welcome and you can send them to me at hlinhan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks for listening. 